We've been talking about the parables there that follow the Olivet Discourse. Jesus preached many, many sermons, but the two most noted sermons that he preached, one at the beginning of his ministry, one at the end of his ministry, the first is the Sermon on the Mount, and then you've got the Olivet Discourse that he preached on the side of the Mount of Olives. Um, Interestingly, he preached it to an audience of 12, or actually even four. Matthew, no, not Matthew, (laughs) Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Um, then following his sermon, he gave three parables. The first was the parable of the ten virgins. Then the parable of the talents. And now tonight, the parable of the sheep and goats. And, And candidly, I don't know that this is, in the strictest sense of the word, a parable. Um, all of them describe events that will happen. But this one is less parabolic than the other two, for sure. And you'll, you'll probably understand that better as we get into it. We're going to follow the same, the same template that we've used for the other two. We're going to ask about the audience, to whom is Jesus speaking, and what are the significant personalities and terms um, that, that we see there. Uh, what is the narrative of the passage? What's the narrative of the passage? Um, what's it saying to us? How do we rightly interpret it? And then how do we rightly apply it? And these are things that I've used with profit, especially in dealing with parables and tough passages. And I confess to you, of the three, this one's the toughest for me. Um, especially as long as I've been at it. I really want to come to you projecting a sense of authority that I know everything this book teaches. I just don't. There are some things that just still escape me. I've said before that one of the blessings of eternity, I believe, is that we're going to spend eternity learning. And this book is deep enough to to take up all of eternity learning it. It's one of the amazing things about the Word of God. You'll, You'll never plumb its depths. There will always be something new. There will always be something wonderful to discover because this book is as deep as Christ himself. Remember, this book is the written manifestation, the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, talking about Jesus. And we have the written Word here. And uh, Peter especially, but all of them, but Peter wrote about it, counted this book as reliable as his eyewitnesses of Jesus himself. In fact, more reliable. Peter said, my eyes can deceive me. This doesn't. So, anyway, I, I, I hope that I can still generate a certain amount of confidence while still admitting there's some things I don't get. And tonight we'll see where we land. Matthew 25, verse number 31. When the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory. And before Him shall be gathered all nations, and He shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Those that know anything about sheep herding know that there comes a point that sheep and goats become incompatible. They can get along for a little while, but there gets to a point that you've got to separate them. You know what? We sometimes, as Christians, we're at least seemingly compatible with the world, but there's going to come a point that God separates. We are not eternally compatible with this world. We're not 
temporally compatible with this world, but sometimes we feel like we are. But there's going to come a time where it's going to be clear to everybody there's one way or the other. One way or the other. Verse 34, Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was unhungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee unhungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was unhungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. Sick and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee in hunger or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Did I pray already? I can never remember. Man, let's pray. Lord God, I sure do need your help with this. Um, This is a passage that challenged me, as many do. And God, it's my desire to rightly divide it. It's my desire to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's uh, my desire to help your people. (laughs) I need the help too. Lord, would you just speak to us tonight? Would you bless your word as you always do? And may we leave here tonight getting exactly what we need. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. The sheep and the goats. I'm going to jot down a note, just something that crossed my mind as I was reading. Because if I don't jot it down, I'll forget to bring it up later. I can't even remember if I prayed or not. So I better jot it down. This happens. Usually I'm I'm a little more smooth about it. I usually do it while you're not looking. But I've got to find the verse. (laughs) There we go. All right. So let's get into it. Question number one. To whom is Jesus speaking? This is no different from the last two parables. His audience remains the same. Uh, It is the disciples specifically and the Jews more broadly. So as we interpret this passage, we need to do so from from that perspective. He's talking to Jews. Now, that does not mean that there's nothing here for us. We make a mistake when when we rightly identify an audience as being a Jewish audience and say, well, nothing for the church here. Paul was pretty clear under inspiration of the Holy Ghost. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is what? Profitable. All of it is profitable. There's something for us everywhere. Something may not be addressed specifically to us, but that doesn't mean there's not something there for us. Okay? Otherwise, we might as well just throw out the whole Old Testament. 
And we know better than that, don't we? See, um, it, it makes me sad. I've got friends of mine that, that I went to college with, and they've all but thrown their Old Testaments out. And really, to be honest with you, they've all but thrown the Gospels out. They're, they're all they're completely Pauline. Pauline epistles, not Pauline, Miss Pauline. You know, Pauline epistles, you, you, you got it. And uh, don't get me wrong, I'm all for being all Miss Pauline. You know, I'm all for Miss Pauline. But, but, but they, they ignore the rest of the Bible because they say this is for New Testament Christianity. No, my Bible says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. We need it all. We need it all. You've just got to know how to rightly divide it. So that leads us to what is the primary subject. What is the primary subject of this passage? It seems to me to be the determination of the king as to who is granted entry into the kingdom and who is refused entry. That's the broadest way of looking at it. Who gets into the millennial kingdom and who does not? Okay. Now, one thing we've got to be careful, do not, do not, do not see this as a lesson about who gets saved versus who doesn't get saved. This is not about the gospel. This is not about the gospel. The gospel has already done its work in those who are saved in this, in this story. Okay? He is not saying that you get into heaven if you do good things for other people, but if you don't, you go to... Listen, there's plenty of people going to heaven that haven't been kind to other people. And there's plenty of people that have been kind to other people that aren't going to make it into heaven. This is not about works. Okay? As a work salvation. So, next question. What are the significant personalities or terms. Well, I don't know that there's any terms that aren't self-evident. We'll probably touch on a couple as we go through, but but we're not going to focus on terms, but I do want to focus on the personalities within these verses. Number 1 is the king. The king, he's identified in verse 31 as the son of man. What was Jesus's favorite title for himself throughout the gospels? Far and away, the son of man. Called himself the Son of Man more than any other title. It is clear, it is clear that the Son of Man and the King are synonymous, verses 31 and 34. And as such, they certainly refer to Jesus in his messianic role as the King of the Jews. Can we all agree on that? Cool. Something that's interesting, and I didn't discover this myself, but I, I think it's true as much as I've been able to study it out. This seems to be the only time that Jesus, by word, referred to himself as king. Now, is he king? Absolutely. Did other people call him king? Absolutely. Did he speak of his kingdom? Absolutely. But this seems to be the only time in Scripture that he calls himself king. I don't know, it's just interesting. So we got the king. That's Jesus. Then we're going to skip ahead to verse number 40. The king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the one of the least of these, my brethren. Who are the brethren? Well, in the New Testament, you have three uses for brethren. First of all, that's men of the same parentage. So if, um, if me and Brother Earl had the same father, same mother, or both, we would be brothers. That's the most common use for the word. By the time this is, this is taking place, which is post-tribulation, are Jesus' half-brothers alive? No. They're long dead. They're long dead. So is his brethren speaking of his literal, physical brethren? Don't believe so. Okay. Another use of brethren in the New Testament are those who share the same spiritual, the same heavenly Father. That would be Christians. 
Is he speaking of brethren within the church? I don't believe the church is in view here. It hasn't been thus far in these three parables. Why would it be now? So I think we can leave that one out. So there's a third use of brethren. Paul used it a lot. He was referring to other Jews. Jesus was and is a Jew. I don't mind saying this publicly. I have, I have no time for anti-Semitism. None. People that would misuse the scriptures to try and find some kind of, uh, some kind of uh, argument against the Jewish people. Now listen, they're sinners just like the rest of us, and they need to be saved just like the rest of us. I understand all of that. But anybody, anybody that is, that is anti-Jewish in their thinking is anti-Bible and anti-Scripture. He calls them his brethren. These are particularly those who have survived the tribulation and have received the Messiah as their Savior. Contextually, I believe it's clear that the brethren that he's referring to in verse number 40 are those brethren that have made it through the tribulation, the Jews. Now, these are the easy ones. This third term, personality rather, the nations. Here we go. Verse 32. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. The word that is used here and the context in which it's used almost always in the Bible refers to Gentiles. And there's no reason to believe that that's not the case here. The nations is a term almost universally ascribed to Gentiles. So, okay, they're Gentiles. Now let's break it down from there. First of all, you have the sheep. Within these Gentile nations, who are the sheep? These are certainly Gentiles who have survived through the tribulation, have seen Jesus at his second coming, his appearance. And before we get in more specifically than that, I think it's helpful to remember how few are left. Okay? Over the course of the tribulation, many people are going to die. A lot of people. Revelation chapter 6, verses 7 and 8 tell us that the first group to go out, 25% of the world's population will die. Then, Revelation 9, verses 15 through 18, of those that remain, 33% of them will die. Or one-third. So let's try and wrap our mind about how much we're talking. Right now, current world population is estimated at like 7.88 billion. We're just going to say 7.9. Because by now, by the time I looked at it, probably is 7.9. Okay. So let's, let's say that when Jesus comes back, which I believe could be soon, let's put, just for ease of addition and subtraction and mathematics in general, let's say the population of the world is 8 billion people. Post-rapture, 8 billion are left. Okay, 
8 billion. That first group, that first group that dies, 25%, 2 billion. Gone. 2 billion people. Okay? So that leaves 6 billion. What's a third of that? I'm sorry, what's half of that, rather? 3 billion. That's 5 billion people. Out of 8 billion people, only 3 billion are left. Okay? This doesn't include those who are killed in martyrdom, those who die of natural causes, if you can call anything during the tribulation natural causes. Okay? Armageddon has already happened. How many people die in Armageddon? I don't know that the Bible gives us a number, but let's, let's think of... Let's think of how many people must be gathered in the Valley of Jezreel. What about these events that surround Armageddon? How about specifically when enough people die for the blood to run about four feet deep over the span of 200 miles? That's a lot of carnage. Somebody figured this up, and I confess to you, I didn't go behind them and see if they're right. Somebody estimated it take about seven months for cleanup. And that's what the birds working overtime. My goodness. So a lot of people have died, and yet, y'all, judgment is not over yet. There's more to come. We're down. We're just going to say two, pe- two billion people. Two, uh, they're going to say three billion people. We're down to three billion people out of once was eight, and there's still judgment yet. Y'all, these end-time events for the unsaved person are going to be horrible. That's why it's so critical, among many reasons, that we be sure that we're ready now so we don't have to be here for any of it. Because it's going to be horrible. Just horrible. As to who these Gentiles are specifically, there's two basic possibilities, and I'm going to read them both. Please don't rise up against me until I've read, read, done both of them. There are some that argue that these Gentiles are not necessarily saved, but have miraculously survived through the tribulation, and they're granted entrance into the kingdom, but not necessarily into heaven. And then there's those that argue that these are saved Gentiles who have avoided martyrdom, for not taking the mark of the beast. Well, I just don't see where unsaved Gentiles can be correct. And I'm going to give you my reasons. The arguments that they make for this is that kingdom access is granted, but not necessarily heaven. Now, now this admittedly, this one, this one has caused me to sit and kind of stroke my chin a little bit. If they're, if, they're, um, if they're commended for 
taking care of the Jews, then it stands to reason they must have taken the mark of the beast or they wouldn't have the resources to take care of the Jews. But could I suggest to you that maybe there's an alternate explanation there? I'm going to save it. There's some that make the distinction between those who have taken the mark and those who have worshipped the beast. Now, I will buy into that in one, in one way. Is it possible that there are some people who do not have the wherewithal to refuse the mark? Children, people who are, you know, have some kind of a brain issue from injury or something like that that could be forced to take it but do not worship the beast. Does God hold, let's say a child that's born and they're in the tribulation is now three and a half, four years old. They take the mark because mom and dad says to. Does God hold them responsible for that? I don't think so. I just don't. That would be the only exception I would make. Because I believe, as I understand Scripture, you take the mark, it's inherent within it that you are worshiping the beast. But that's, you can't have one without the other. Okay. <clears throat> My argument against this was it's pretty clear what happens to those who worship the beast and who take the mark. And these are events that take place before the events that we're reading about in, in Matthew chapter 25. Revelation 19 verse 20, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Uh, within that, Within that is the implication that everybody with the mark of the beast goes to the lake of fire too. But I got a better one than that. Why do I believe that these Gentiles have to be saved people? Verse 37. Well, verse... verse uh, 34, then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 37, then shall the what? Righteous. What does righteous mean? Saved. To me, that settles it right there. He's speaking to a group of people who the Bible identifies as righteous. That's what tells me that these Gentiles are people that have believed on Jesus. Something else, verse 34. It says, Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The kingdom prepared for you. No kingdom of God in any form has ever been prepared for the unsaved. There will be unsaved people in the millennial kingdom, but God didn't prepare it for them. So the only possibility left is that these sheep are saved, are saved Gentiles who somehow avoided taking the mark and still had the resources to help the Jews. Okay? If, if the mark is necessary to buy and to sell and all of that, how in the world do they have the resources to help the Jews? I got one word for you. It may resonate with some of you. Preppers. You know any preppers? Some of you maybe are preppers to some degree. All of us were a little bit prepperish when, you know, the millennium switched over. My dad was. He bought a bag of rice and flour and some batteries. You know what we had? We had too much rice and too much flour. 
we eventually use the batteries. We all got a little bit of prepper in us, don't we? These are people that manage to have resources, and rather than hoard them to themselves, they use them to be a blessing to God's chosen people. So then who are the goats? The goats are Gentiles who have survived the tribulation, but are not saved. And I'm sorry to say that their story is really short. They are separated. They are, could we put it this way, they are cold. The goats are separated from the sheep. The sheep are on his right hand, a place of honor, a place of blessing. They're put to a place of cursing. And they are immediately ushered into eternal fire. Just like that. So, what's the narrative of this parable? Let's say this passage. I don't like calling it a parable. Before we propose a narrative, we've got to answer two important questions. Whoops. Two important questions. First of all, when does this occur? What Jesus is speaking about in these verses in Matthew 25, when does this occur? I believe it occurs at the close of the tribulation, after the battle at Armageddon, and just before Jesus officially begins his millennial reign. It's right there in that little place. Second question, where does this occur? I believe I can tell you exactly where this occurs. This occurs in an area called the Valley of Jehoshaphat, outside of Jerusalem. Why do I believe that? Well, turn to Joel chapter 3. Hold your place here and turn to Joel chapter 3. I always give people a little extra time when it's in the Minor Prophets. I'm not judging. I struggle too. Joel 3, verse 2. I will also gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel. And they've scattered among the nations and parted my land. Let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. That's verse 12. I'm sorry, verse 12. Well, it sounds a lot like what we were reading about, doesn't it? That's something that's super important. Do not confuse this judgment with the great white throne judgment that happens a thousand years later and is covered in Revelation 20. This is not the same thing. Okay? Not the same thing. So let's look at the narrative. Following his appearance at his second coming and defeat of the Antichrist forces in Armageddon, Jesus gathers the remaining Gentiles into the valley of Jehoshaphat to separate them for blessing or for cursing. On his right, Jesus places those he designates as sheep and welcomes them into the kingdom. He commends them for caring for him when he was in need, feeding when hungry, offering water when thirsty, sheltering when homeless, clothing when exposed, visiting when in prison or sick. They respond that they have no recollection of doing any of these things for Jesus, but he, tre- he teaches them that when they showed kindness and mercy to any Jew, the least of these, they were doing it to him. 
He then condemns those he labels as goats, unsaved Gentiles who showed the Jews no kindness. He condemns them to everlasting fire. And basically what happens here. So, what is the proper interpretation of the passage? This is not a theology of how to be saved. This is not teaching that if you're kind to the chosen people of God, he'll let you into heaven, and if you're not, he'll condemn you to hell. It's not what it's saying. No one is granted eternal life in this passage. They're granted entrance into the millennial kingdom. These people, I believe, these people that go into the kingdom, these sheep, maintain their limited humanity. Now, at best, perhaps Jesus grants them the ability to live longer lives within them. We know that's going to happen in the millennial kingdom. In the millennial kingdom, people are going to live for hundreds of years. The Bible says if somebody dies at 100, they'll be thought a child. So there will be extended lifespans. These particular groups of people, as they transition from the tribulation into the millennial kingdom, I confess to you, I don't know if God grants them extended life. But they go in there able to die. Able to die. But they're saved. So it's okay. Okay? Their children, I believe, will enjoy this extended life. But their children will have to receive the Savior just like everybody else does. Now, during the millennial kingdom, you understand that we return to this, well, I say we, but they will return to the sacrificial system. But remember, even in the Old Testament, people were saved by grace through faith in the Old Testament, just like they are the New Testament. Okay? So people will still be saved the same way, but these, these, these sacrificial systems are going to be in place to teach this new group of people what Jesus did for them. Eternal life wasn't granted because they were kind to the Jews. Eternal life was granted when they believed on Jesus. That's when they got that. We could, we could say this, this. This very closely mirrors James chapter 2. This is a teaching that one's works will demonstrate their faith. Jesus is not saying you are, you are saved because you did these things. He's saying you did these things because you're saved. There's more we could say about this, but I think we'd do better to spend a little time on the application. Could we put it this way, the so what? Okay, this whole thing's about the Jews. It's about the millennial kingdom. It has nothing to do with the church. So what am I supposed to take from this? We're not even involved in it. What do I take from this? Remember, all Scripture is profitable. So can I give you three things that I took from this? Three things that were a help to me by application. Number one, God blesses those who bless Israel. This just confirms what we've known all through Scripture. You remember way back in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord God had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curse thee, and in, all, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. That's a really simple promise. You bl- the, I'll bless those that bless you. I'll curse those that curse you. And we have found that to be true all throughout history. Um, candidly, I don't want to get too political here, but 
One of the things that I appreciated about President Trump was he always demonstrated, I don't know what he felt in his heart, but his politics demonstrated that he was very much pro-Israel. And I took a great deal of comfort in that. And let me make this clear. Just because I like certain things that President Trump did does not mean that I hold him up to be the gold standard of Christianity, that we should never see anything wrong in him. The fact is, President Trump had a lot of missteps. And even now, he's saying some things that trouble me. Okay, But the fact that he was very much pro-Israel made me feel pretty good about things. More often than not, people on the other side of the aisle tend to be less concerned about Israel or actually hostile to Israel. Fine, my politics mix with my faith. They should. I'll never vote for anybody that's hostile to Israel. I don't care if they're a rock-ribbed conservative Republican. God blesses those that bless Israel, and God curses those that curse Israel. And when America turns its back on Israel once and for all, we better watch out. And God holds to this all the way into the millennial kingdom. So I take that from there. Something else I take. Salvation has always been by grace through faith in Christ and his finished work alone. Nobody gets to heaven except through grace. By grace he is saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And then finally, and I think for us maybe this is the the biggest so what. (laughs) God keeps close watch on what we do and why. Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. What's what's the, the kid song we used to sing? Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. Oh, be careful, little lips, what you say. Oh, be careful, little mind, what you think. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. Be careful, little hands, what you do. Why? Because the Father up above is looking down in love. He sees it all. Now, that can be an intimidating thought. You know, we talked about the psalmist in Psalm 139, Thou hast searched me and known me. That's an intimidating thought to me. But I'll tell you, it's also a precious thought. When I've done my best, he knows. I've tried. When I come up short, but God knows my heart, I sure did want to come up longer than that. He knows. When I've tried to serve and it seems like nobody notices, he knows. And he knows why. There's going to be a lot of us. I'm going to be head of that list. There's going to be a lot of us that we're not going to get some rewards, not because we didn't do the right thing. We didn't do it for the right reason. Motives matter. And we see here in this, in this passage that God kept track of every person that did right by his people. And rewarded them accordingly. But he also kept track of everybody who didn't. We'll never get anything past him. So that finishes the Olivet Discourse. And all God's people said...
Let's go over to Mark. Am I going to preach another one? Nope. But I want to look at the passage we're going to take on the week after next. The week after next. Um, Mark chapter 14. Verse number 1. I think this is where I left off. Anybody remember? It's been a while. After two days was the feast of the Passover and of the unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes saw that they might take him by craft and put him to death. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. For ye have the poor with you always, and whensoever ye will, ye may do them good. But me ye have not always. She hath done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priest to betray him unto them. So that's what we'll cover in two weeks. Lord willing, next week I've been invited to preach a revival out of town, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. That begins my preaching out revival season. Incidentally, it also ends my preaching out revival season. It's the only meeting I have scheduled for the whole year. Um, There's two reasons that I don't preach out much. One is, as a pastor, I do think that I have an obligation to as much as I can be around my people. I've known pastors over the years that were never home. And that's okay, but I don't know how you pastor like that. I really don't. The second reason, maybe a little more compelling, is nobody's really asking for me to come to preach at their places. So there's my two reasons.